0: It is Monday, March 8th. Welcome to LA Podcast. I am your co-host, Alyssa Walker, joined by Scott Frazier and Hayes Davenport. Gang's all back.
1: We're back. Back to normal, right? Yeah. Everything's that's going back we, to normal.
0: That's all we ever want is to get back to normal. Yeah.
1: Uh, we we're we so back to normal. I think we decided... I, I, I think the... Um, the state regulations are once we get back into red tier we can do LA stories again. Yes. Oh, and I and that I think that and I, I think the numbers in the
0: public health order.
1: And I think the numbers are there pretty soon that we
2: can we can do them again this week. Oh wow. Fi- finally the yeah. the nanny state Thank is you. allowing us to, to Thank tell you, our LA story. we
0: won't recall you now. Now that we can tell our stories freely again.
2: I've got I've got an LA story. Um <laughs> My building was just sold during COVID. I'd been kind of posting. Congratulations. Uh, when... Yeah, thanks. God, I get a commission.
1: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's huge. I've been saying this is oh, exactly mean what like Scott that. should be doing. Right. You don't
0: mean your building. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> uh,
2: I've been posting on Twitter about this as different things were happening. The experience of having a landlord uh, slash property owner who is trying to offload, the, the building in which you live during COVID is pretty strange. I know it's it's not by any means unique to me. I think it's something a lot of people are going through, but we had this whole back and forth with people coming to see the property and the, the regulations not being really clear. But of course, during the winter, we had a, a very... Um, uh, a very expansive lockdown that was put in place here in the city. So we, as as the me and my neighbors basically banded together to tell our landlord, no, you can't have people coming in here. We just won't allow it. They sold the building anyway. So clearly that wasn't unnecessary for the people who are looking to buy right now. I had a little bit of a concerning moment because I had been telling um I've been telling my neighbors, you know, like, uh, there's very little chance that somebody's actually going to come in here and Ellis act all of us. And, and because like, y- you can do that. You can come in, even if there's rent stabilization, you can kick everybody out and say, we're going to build something new here. The chances of that happening for our building were pretty low, I was telling them. And then so the 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 person who actually bought our company or about our, our building owns like a talent agent come agency and um and i was had this moment of just being like oh shit like somebody with money who like maybe just like their their child is gonna come in and turn our fourplex into a mansion and that's how this is all gonna go down <laughs> <laughs> and and then they actually are just gonna LS act all of us. That was my that was my fear. I was like, ah, this is like the one I was like doing the like Doctor Strange gif. That was like the one calculation that I did not actually run through. Um uh, but it seems like it's um it seems like they are gonna be just like a, a standard issue absentee landlord situation here. Hayes looked up my new landlord and found out mm-hmm. that they, like, used to represent Paul Walker. So,
1: yeah.
0: That's a bad the, sign.
1: The talent business, like, if if I were them, I'd be getting into uh, real estate, too. The safer <laughs> investment these days, I think.
0: Also, wouldn't a downzoning be encouraged since you said that your your house is in the Hollywood community plan and it's now... Used to be multifamily, and now it's single family. Were you saying that?
2: Used to be multifamily, like uh, like when Gary Cooper was around. Like it had. Oh. It's been single family for like a long did ass also, time. <laughs>
0: did, he, did he also own real estate? He was also, you know, part of. The- <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, Oh, speaking of which, I found out that the, uh, not, this is unrelated, but a long, a long time ago, I discovered that the, the shopping center across the street from me where Jay's and garage pizza is, was originally owned by the widow of LA's first city attorney. So (laughs) these these things do happen. I want to say you have a story, right?
0: Mine, mine's a good flow into that. I think, um, I watched, and I hope a lot of our listeners did as well, the first panel by JT and Sammy that we, you know, have been promoting heavily. Um, I think the official, the URL, easthollywood.eventbrite.com, if you go there, you can register for the next events coming up, but... Um, These were, the first one was just, I mean, I was sitting at my computer in tears because the stories were so moving and to hear from these two uh, longtime residents of East Hollywood um, about their experiences with redlining and also not knowing what redlining was, like what was even happening, like the policy was not clear to them as residents of the neighborhood why Certain things were changing um, and and their their real um, the, just their their explanations of the the subtle things that they had to go through. First of all, one of the panelists was interned. He got you know forcibly taken from his home uh, as part of World War II. He's Japanese of Japanese descent. Um, so his story was incredibly wild. But the other panelist was a black woman whose family had moved here in 1895. Um, just amazing history and photos, um, and and their family actually took some of the belongings of the residents who um, went to, to internment camps. So they had like were keeping like valuables and watching stores for them. I mean, just this amazing neighborhood. All happening, you know, right around uh, where we where we live and where we all live. I guess like our very hyper, hyper local um, content of the the podcast host. So please tune in on this Thursday um, and and learn more about um, the, the this this Thursday is the uh, present day um part of the panel and then the next week the following week is the future so really highly highly recommended. and
2: it. we'll put i think uh they have they have a recorded version of that on youtube right so we can i've put got it all like,
1: queued up i couldn't great. make the the live one i'm gonna make that but there's hundreds of people right turnout was yeah huge. they said
0: they had 500 people just on the zoom and then you could overflow watch it on the if you can't find it for some reason you can watch it on the west hollywood i mean sorry East Hollywood um, neighborhood council wow. socials. They had them all sharing. So um, please tune in. It was, it, I feel like every, not that we should have neighborhood councils, but every neighborhood <laughs> council should do something like this but, just to get the people's stories, you know, down.
2: So, I mean, this this is such an amazing resource and idea. And you did mention like it is, it's sort of, it's like part of our little Hyperion, hyperlocal bubble yeah. sort of, but- <laughs> Just, I mean, as a resource, as an alternative media project, this is so incredible that this is happening. I think uh, it does really bring up the fact that, like, when we talk about redlining from the perspective of the 21st century, that's after, like, decades of having the, the ability to see the impacts of that policy, whereas if you're living through that and you're not a white person going to buy a home then yeah, of course it's not going to be transparent to you like how that is impact, why why your neighborhood is changing in the way that it is. So um, really incredible work. And w- like I said, we'll post up uh, the links online so that people can watch it uh, after the fact if they're not present in the room. And Hayes, you have an LA story about something meteorological, I hear.
1: I don't, not a personal, nothing has happened to me. But I'm going to give my story over to... A rain check where we check on the rain. (laughs)
0: Literal rain check.
1: So just like (laughs) I've talked before about like following these metrics very closely and setting like an arbitrary standard for like what is acceptable, what's like a victory. And usually it's like if we get a double digits, inches, that is like okay for me. The normal is like 14 inches, but if we get over 10, I'm like, okay, this is all right. Like I'll live. Now the standard for me is like trying not to – Set the record for the least rain since 2006. Okay, in 2006 we had only 3.21 inches. Uh, right now we have 4.39. February was a total bust. For fe- I get all my information on uh, monthly rain totals from LaAlmanac.com, one of my favorite websites. Mm-hmm. Under February we got a T, big capital T. For a trace or oh. for, for a tragedy which means we got nothing at all last That's February we got only 0.04 inches this is historically the wettest month yeah. of the year but the last time we got a T was 1963
2: Jesus so
1: I'm try uh, I, I, what we have to beat is the 27 2018 number to not be the lowest uh, since 2006. Uh, and that's four point seven nine,
2: and we're at four. Was point... that the last year of the of the drought? Was that? I mean, the last no that, dry year of the drought.
1: That was so. We had the drought that basically ended in 2016, and then we had 19 inches. We had that huge uh, rain year in 2016, 2017. Mm-hmm. But then the year after that, we had the really, really no, low number of four point seven nine inches. If we can get point four inches out of the rest of this rain year, then I will survive. I think I would be... otherwise, no.
2: God, this is hard. Do you think we're going to hit it?
1: It's supposed to rain a little bit. Two days. Two days this week, Wednesday, Thursday. The average for April is an inch. So, like, it's not impossible that we would get bailed out by, like, a little bit of late rain, but it's going to be a disastrous water year. My question is, people say, like, oh, we're going to have a really bad fire year this year because Mm -hmm. of how little rain. We had... The worst mm-hmm. fire year ever this year,
2: and decent rain last year. I I want to say, like, I, I feel like I'm I'm on record every year saying this. We've been doing the show three years now, and I've 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 been consistent in saying no matter what happens, yeah. Everybody says that's why we're about to have the worst fire year. Rains a lot, then you got these huge blooms. Everything yes burns. Doesn't rain. Everything's dry. It just it just seems like every year there's it's no matter what happens it's gonna be fire. I do I do worry about not hitting that mark though, and I think that if you go back to like 2006, I don't I don't know this for sure, and and it maybe is outside of L A Almanac's ability to tell us. I feel like back then the rest of the state was doing better. Like even though LA had a very dry year, like a historically dry year, um, that, that was not the case so much in the Bay. But this year, it seems like it's the whole state is, is whole state. falling. Whole Western falling. United States yes.
0: this year, actually. Oh, really? So it's, yeah, I don't even it's pay attention bad. to the other 49 oh, states. Why would you? <laughs> but then... For this, it does matter. We get some of our water from those states.
2: Uh, um, we have a new episode of Thirty Mile Zone that is up for our Sepulveda Pass holders. Uh, th-
1: it's, it's probably not up as you're listening to this, but it will be up this week. And it's a great one. It was so That's fun,
2: so much fun. It was fun for us to do. I th- I believe it will be fun for you to listen to. It is decline of Western civilization, which absolutely crushed and our sort of runners up poll for for movies that have been in previous polls and lost uh, and it was great to talk about the way that each of us uh, and our guest Mira Gonzalez who is the the daughter of Chuck Dukowski from Black Flag uh, and and joined us to to discuss the movie each of us watching this movie i think for for the first time all the way through as people who are like i don't know just Way, I don't, I guess, I don't know if that's true for you, Hayes, but for me, it was my first time at all watching it and doing it as somebody who's way older than all of the people in all of the bands in the documentary was quite an experience. Uh, please check that out on our Patreon, um, available to any of our subscribers, and we thank you for supporting us. Uh, what happened in LA this week? I, I turned to Alyssa for for all of my LA updates for this week cuz I felt extremely like I was just adrift not knowing what was happening. We had an election.
0: Yeah, there was an election.
2: Say more about that. <laughs> yeah, there was an uh, there was an election. We had uh one of the uh candidates Daniel Lee from um Culver City to talk to us about his uh race for the 30th Senate District in the state of California. That was a special election that was triggered by Holly Mitchell's successful run for the second supervisorial district here in LA County. Uh, Daniel Lee did lose uh, along with the other candidates against Sydney Kamlager. And uh, so Sydney will be the new uh, representative from Senate District 30. Were either of you guys, I think I had expected this was going to be a major uphill fight for everybody uh who was not Cam Lager cuz sh- she's in the assembly already um she has a pretty strong coalition uh at her back but were you either of you surprised by the margin at all
1: i wouldn't say not super surprised like she had i think over the last couple of years built a record around criminal justice reform that like that was like she had a coalition supported by Holly Mitchell, who was obviously very popular in that seat from how the mar- huge margin that she won by when she ran for supervisor last year. Uh, and she, she had, people- had the,
2: the, the measure, the measure J coalition. That, exactly. Basically the measure
1: up. J coalition, including Isaac Bryan, one of the co-chairs of, of measure J who is now running for her, Assembly seat that yep. uh, has has now been vacated in that special election. Yeah,
0: we'll never escape the special elections. They're just gonna they're just gonna keep going. <laughs>
2: the, the, the the election cycle will just keep spinning. That is AD. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that's AD fifty three, which will be set for a special election by Governor Newsom or his Republican replacement sometime in the near future. So, (laughs) Alyssa, you wanted to talk about COVID. COVID chat. I I I hear I I hear you want to talk about COVID.
0: (laughs) Personally, (laughs) I've had my fill, but
2: Alyssa just keeps (laughs) saying she wants more like, guys
0: we really should talk about this again uh, one more time. for the last time finally well I think uh, you know Hayes alluded earlier that we're we're moving into the red tier so is that
1: official when that's happening or it's just definitely gonna happen I
0: mean this week? I think it's a it's an estimation that we would move into it but we have to stay at it for two weeks yeah. for it's, the
2: it's actually two it's two different things that I think have made it very very likely that that will happen one is that our our COVID case numbers are going down. Like Alyssa said, that would have to stay that way for two weeks. The other is that they're actually, I believe, relaxing the the definitions for the individual tiers where it had been um, two weeks with COVID cases under, I think, seven per 100,000 or eight per 100,000 residents. Now they're going to make it under ten to to, to uh, yeah to transition from purple to red, and we've been under ten. It was only under eight that was a challenge for us. For us.
0: So under the red tier, you're going to see things like movie theaters being able to open. If you've been watching what's been going on um, over the last few weeks in. Um, New York, they, I think on last Friday was the first day you could go see a movie again. Um, indoor dining will open, mm-hmm. which is terrifying, but you could probably just have the whole restaurant to yourself because it will only be at 25% capacity. Um, and one thing we haven't checked back in on was the whole outdoor dining saga. Remember when there was that court case, we had this right. judge who's becoming very problematic for many uh, issues of COVID life. Um Tried to say that you had to, you know, outdoor dining uh, had to stay open unless they can prove it, and it looks like he was his opinion was not held up uh, at a higher court, um, who basically said that it was in the public's interest to keep outdoor dining closed when it was, but now it's all,
1: it's all back open, open anyway. and so
0: is so is indoor dining. Yeah, so. he
1: he had tried <laughs> to put the burden of proof on the county health department to produce the data. The scientific data showing that this was in the public health interest, when you know the health department was also saying like one of the reasons we're closing off outdoor dining is so people just like understand the seriousness of this and like don't gather in groups at all. Yeah, uh, and like it's it's not really the job of the county health department to like prove the scientific viability of these different things, and that's what the appeals court found is that it was an arbitrary demand for judge Chalfant to to put on the county health department um so they put out a little a press
2: release That's, celebrating their free
1: I mean, speech. This, victory. this is
2: really interesting. I feel like well this is obviously a once in a century event. Other no, parts of the world yeah. have gone through it more frequently, I suppose. But but in America this is the first major pandemic that we've experienced since uh the early 20th century. I do wonder you know with with everything that's changed in terms of I think our our philosophies about the the role of government and everything there stands to be a lot learned following the end of this pandemic like we could go to New York and look at an example there where um the 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 rule by emergency decree has been very, I think, rightfully criticized, you know, some of the decisions made by Governor Cuomo led to a lot of people dying. But here, in this particular case, I I agree, like this, this particular burden of proof would have been catastrophic. If we even just like look back over the course of the last, uh, you know, year, all of the different things that we've learned with first officials being like you don't need to wear a mask and then it being like you do need to wear a mask you know like now you need to wear two masks like we've we and those are not really capricious changes those are things that actually represent an evolving understanding of the threat for for the government to also be tasked with proving at each step along the way that all of the things that it's doing are dramatically improving safety outcomes, it's like, well, some of those things will not pan out. If you are moving mm-hmm. with the speed at which uh, at which I, I think that they're trying to in order to save lives, um, then yeah, some superseding information may come up later on that says, okay, we don't need to do these things and then the government should be responsive to that. But proving it before you implement it seems... Disastrous. So, this is, is yeah. a good precedent to avoid.
0: And it really goes, it ties in very well with the school yeah. debates because, which we, we'll also talk about that, because now being in the red, if we're in the red tier, that is one of the conditions under which um, UTLA has said that they will return that vaccination and the school safety plan. So, I were almost in the clear for that to happen.
2: Also, uh, um, Governor, Governor Newsom said that he had set aside 25,000 vaccines for for LAUSD workers. Is that right? I, I right. believe that's so he, correct. S-
0: that's the magic number. They started their vaccination clinics um, on March 1st. They have them set up at the school. It's really, it's like to see the, the photos of teachers, um, they're posting them online with this hashtag and it's just so great. Um, the nurses are giving and- the shots. The nurses are giving the shot. I mean, there's nothing like this being done anywhere else in the country, so it's it's really remarkable. Um, but then again, yeah, the, the an- announcement from Newsom is is ridiculous again because it's like, yes, he gave them the the shots. He they're giving them money, but if they they say if you don't open by April 1st, you don't get as much money. So it's kind of like this incentive to to get the schools to open. First of all, we're on spring break, mm-hmm. so it won't even be till the next week anyway. So do we lose like three days of money? I don't know. But the school, maybe we say that the first days back is whatever day, like in in April. I I still, I have hopes that we can get to that point. It sounds like everything should should work that way. We'll just see how the next few weeks go. Um, But the teacher said they had a vote and they announced, uh, the teachers union announced last week that if everything's not met, that doesn't mean we go back on the day that the governor says we go back. And I think that that's very good and very clear. Mm-hmm. But it was also misinterpreted as so many of these statements are like a lot of news media and not just Bill Malugan said that they would go on strike if they if they were their demands weren't met. They're like, no. oh, no, we're there. Now the teachers so are going to they,
1: teach classes they just could, as they have keep teaching doing the same way, Yeah,
0: that we've been doing. We just would. Doing it for a few more days, but but as the union pointed out, very correctly, like once again, the it's setting up this um, you know two different classes of schools because if your schools is already open, Mm -hmm. if you live in a wealthier district, for example, uh, private schools too, you'll start getting that money. Um, Private schools, you'll start getting that money on April first. If it takes us a little bit longer, because oh, I don't know, we were the hardest hit county. In the country for a while, um, we still have a lot of things we need to do to make sure that we're it's safe to get back. Now we're going to miss out on some of that money. It's just a stupid plan. So I think Kelly Gonas referred us the to that
1: money distributing system on our show. Board President Kelly Gonas as blackmail. Am I am I remembering yeah, I mean, that
0: right? I mean, it, it, that wasn't the plan. wasn't out yet. This is the more recent plan, but they this is the kind of same thing right. that's been you know floated for a long time, and it's ridiculous. So like. Give the places the money that that they need to open and make sure that they can open safely. Don't be like, if you're not open by April 1st, you know, we're we're just going to punish you. It makes no sense.
2: Red tier uh, allows for reopening of grades seven through twelve, um, which are, I think, uh, demonstrated to be at a higher risk of transmission of of COVID as as compared with younger aged children. Um, I, I, Gavin Newsom has clearly changed in the wake of the very real recall threat against him I still don't think that he will be recalled but I mean it seems like he has determined to become the governor who to to paraphrase Suge Knight is dancing all in the videos (laughs) (laughs) He said that he was asked about uh, when in-person sports would return, when people would be able to go to stadiums to see sports, and he said opening day for baseball, which is of course very, very soon. He does seem to be in a uh, like give the people what they want sort of mode. I we have we haven't really talked about it in these terms that much, um, part partially because we're we're trying to focus much more on the human costs of political decisions, but. I am curious like with this school's discourse reaching the fever pitch that it has in in recent weeks are are these changes are these rapid cascading decisions being made at the highest level of state administration necessary to force to to fend off the recall effort by by Gavin Newsom are is that actually needed does he need to do this or or what well, what's happening?
0: I I would say again this points to who who he's listening to and the the battle in San Francisco mm-hmm. for SFUSD is hot. Yeah. And I think those parents, the the wealthy parents that are enrolled in public schools there um are making a lot of noise and he probably hears that and sees that and 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 they're on a recall um they're on recall Bonanzas up there they're trying to recall the school board and change the way that they're elected. they're trying to recall their district attorney these very wealthy, powerful people in San Francisco. so to me, I feel like he hears a lot of that and this is to to appease them I don't I don't see that it down here I mean, I see people being super supportive of the union. I see some really stupid signs and some ridiculous like protests like the one day that some Wealthy white parents were protesting um, by turning off their Zoom or whatever. Which, but I besides the news coverage which they always get, I don't really see, you know, big angry, uh, you know, noise being made by by the parents down here. That as much as there,
2: if if there were. You would know about it, and not just because you have a you have children in, in LAUSD. But I feel like you know, the the magnitude that LAUSD is, and right wing media. You mentioned Bill Malugin and, and Fox News have really taken the opportunity to to use this to demonize a very popular teachers union here. Uh, the LA Times, of course, has also sort of said that the, the teachers union shouldn't squander the the goodwill that, that they earned during the, the strike. Um, but all of it, I think, disguises the fact that there's not like a ton of, uh, there's not that popular anger about about the, the remote learning because, I mean, I think because in, in large part, LUSD is composed of different communities than, than those that compose the San Francisco Unified School District. I will never forget the 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 statistic um that that i heard i don't know if it's still true as en- enrollment has declined but that lausd has a larger population of of school-aged children than san francisco has of of people total and i i bring that up frequently um LAUSD is enormous and it is extremely extremely composed of impoverished families from black and brown communities And Lane, the Los Angeles Alliance for a New Economy, uh, published a report this week that um, the LA Times had been skewing its its coverage of the schools reopening debate by specifically focusing. I mean, I don't know if they were doing it intentionally, but they were disproportionately. Uh, sourcing quotes and comments from parents and and people in the West Side, people from communities that were relatively higher income, more likely to be white, and away from communities uh, like those found in South and Central and East LA. Uh, did you did you guys have a chance to, yep. to read through this 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 report? To me, was so. It, it tells you a lot I think about the framing of this narrative it is an issue I think beyond a doubt that children are losing the opportunity to socialize they're losing the opportunity to co- connect emotionally with people of their their own age much has been made of this in the press people saying uh the 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 impacts of this will, will reverberate for decades um but I'm not as clear that there's uh, that there is a solution that doesn't involve kind of just like throwing teachers and support services at schools into the maw and just hoping that it turns out okay for them. So when we have locally a, a, our main paper here using their platform to really boost the the voices of one concentrated end of the socioeconomic spectrum, um, that to me leaves a lot to be desired. Alyssa, you said that you, you had seen some, some studies as well about like, or, or stories about the perceived safety of learning from home in communities of color, right?
0: Well, in that, in that, uh, that report, the Lane report, there was a USC study um, and they regularly poll you know Southern California, so they I would trust it. I would think it's a probably pretty good one, but it it was overwhelmingly showed if you were a white family, you wanted your kids to be back, and if you were anything else, like it was you know it was like they had it broken down by black latino you know it was people were much less were much more like stay ba- stay home until it's safe, and I think that if you are truly. Listening mm-hmm. to the, the, those communities, which we said make up the large majority of LAUSD. Um, if you were truly listening to their concerns, um, you it would not be a very difficult you know, comment to make if somebody asked you, like, what do the schools want? What do the parents want? And what do the teachers want? Because the teachers are also overwhelmingly non-white. And so I think that's something to think about where people are living, what communities they're coming from. Um, what the situation still is in a lot of these neighborhoods um, where it it's, it doesn't feel safe yet. And my God, like, I, like the, the, the school thing to be a parent right now is just, it, it, you, you know, that every parent, you know, is going through something different and um, it's very hard. But um, I just keep thinking, like, when we look back on this, like, is that what you, when you finally meet that teacher face to face or you, you know, go to that meeting, what do you want to say that you did at this time? Mm-hmm. That you were pushing them to reopen when they were voting 91% that they you know are not ready to go back yet? Um, are you really trying to go public and yell at teachers unions when they've honestly done everything they can it's not it's not their fault it's you know a, a huge funding and and, and a structural issue that doesn't have anything to do with really yeah. <laughs> the local level i mean it's kind
2: of similar to what we talked about either last week or a couple of weeks ago with the um you know when when we were talking about vaccine equity and we were talking about how we have we're we're, we're in the situation that we're in right now, not inevitably, but as a result of, you know, decades worth of allowing social services to atrophy to the point where now, I mean, LAUSD is the exemplar for this. When I when I look across the country and I see the sorts of vigorous and vehement rejection of keeping schools closed that I see, I, I can only think... LAUSD has more kids who get school, who get social services through their schools than basically anywhere else in the country. Yes.
0: And we have the, some of the lowest per pupil spending and we're still right. and supposed to cover that type of thing too. Exactly.
2: And and it's, it's kind of remarkable to me then that the expectation is or seems to me that there is... Um, you know that that there actually is a right way to handle this within the span of the pandemic there's there's really not you, i mean you can't really shift everything on a dime and and it's really like when you rack up these debts when you when you incur and that's how it should be thought of when you incur a debt in social services spending over the course of 50 years and say we're just not we're just going to kick the can down the, the road and eventually uh, eventually, that debt will come due, and in this case, it happens to be during a time of of widespread unrest and and uh, and global pandemic. Um, you can't then say, "Okay, now we need to rearrange everything in our society that has built up over the course of these decades, and be able to meet everybody's needs in a way that will make everybody happy." the 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 thing that people are saying, that parents are saying. My children are missing out on valuable learning time. My children are missing out on um, emotional connections.
0: Sports. It's always sports too. Always it's, sports. I'm, I have no
2: doubt in my mind that it's true. <laughs> and yet, what yeah. are you going to do about it? Like, what, how are you yeah. actually? How are you actually going to? the The thing is, most of most of the world has said, you know, we we balance out the The likelihood that somebody is going to get seriously ill, a, a teacher is going to get seriously ill, janitor, whoever, or die of COVID versus um, versus the mental and, in in all honesty, oftentimes economic costs that we that we expect to come out of this missed in person class time, and we decide that on an economic basis, it's worth the risk that teachers will die yeah i mean why men's words It's worth the risk that worth the risk that teachers will die um, because then we lessen some of the the economic burden that we will face 5 or 10 years out from all of the kids who will undoubtedly again in my mind need extra social services that's the thing is that we are not getting out of this cheaply. And if that's your, if that is the center of this conversation, then we're having the wrong conversation. And I don't blame 91% of UTLA teachers for refusing to be collateral for a cheaper aftermath to the pandemic.
0: Yeah. But that is, I mean, mm -hmm. and those are the discussions that, that we're having, you know, as school in schools, like, um, some money was saved this year because you, we didn't use it, you know, there was no like field trips and stuff. So like, so we have extra money and we have to figure out like, for exactly that we're talking about like, you know, making sure there are more nurses, making sure there are more social services, social workers, all these other um, people that can, can help extra, just extra teachers to make sure that people get enough attention. And what I, what, what I see, <laughs> you know, I see parents saying either they are leaving public school, they're moving away from a city that can't, you know, fully educate their child. And I just want to like tell them, or maybe if you're hearing me and you want to tell a friend, but like for a lot of us white parents, this is the worst thing that will ever happen to our children in our entire lives. Mm -hmm. This is your one year of learning loss is very bad. I have no doubt it affects you, but it's the worst thing your kids will ever face. It is not the case for the 80% other kids at LAUSD who are from who you know are are free lunch or the recipients of free lunch because they live below you know a certain level of income. you have to really think about what you're gonna fight for like I said, like is this what you want to look look back on and say i I left or i I gave up or I yelled at a teacher in public mm-hmm. like, no, this is what we were fighting for. This is what you signed up for when you joined decided to send your kid to public education and and to try to, Take down the other systems, the privates and the charters that are making this worse for our families right now. So that's my my plea, my small plea for everybody out there. We're going to it's going to be much better when we go back to a school that's better, better for it.
1: With uh, a huge amount of funding coming from the federal government as of this week. To Ooh, yes. not just schools, uh, but to parents, uh, a, a parent like the expanded child tax credit, the reimbursements for spending on childcare and things like that, like it, it was the product of a lot of organizing and good work from members of the House to mm-hmm. make sure that this package primarily delivered for parents. I mean, like that, that that appears to have been. What happened, and so we are gonna talk about that package uh, a little more in one second. Want to talk about the wild council meeting this week? One of this is like the corniest moments on the <laughs> LA podcast text thread, where I, I was watching the council meeting. I was like you you guys gotta turn this on, like this is it's <laughs> this is going off. Are you watching uh, this? This was it was the last meeting before spring break for the city council. Uh, And up for a vote was the reallocation of, in this case, a a fraction of some of the money that was reallocated from the LAPD to various city services after the uprising in this past summer. Uh, And this has, uh, just like to to track the back and forth of it, uh, as quickly as possible, it's had a pretty long journey the original way that the city council decided to reallocate this money was distributed among the council districts based on uh, which had the most low-income census d- districts. So current prices in uh, South L.A. Uh, in District 9 got the most, about $22 million. Mike bonn in District 11 got the least. I think he got like a few thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. And each council member got to decide what they spent the money on. And there was some criticism about some of the areas where this money was spent as basically being like a slush fund, going to like street repair and street lighting and things that like the council members just like wanted to get done. They made the point. I think I. I think I called it that. I think some of the other council members called it that too. I think. <laughs> I think. I think Bob Blumenthal <laughs> called it that. And they like you know the the point was made by those council members that like we represent lower income districts, street lighting and and street repair in underserved neighborhoods is racial equity, but the mayor and Black Lives Matter both said this is not targeted enough to the reform of the law enforcement and like offering better alternatives to armed police that this was meant to address. And so the mayor vetoed this reallocation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the city council went back to the lab. Seemed like for a while that they were just going to bring it back exactly the same way it was before and override the veto. They only need 10 votes out of the 15 To do that, they can usually put that together pretty ably because they agree on most things. But what happened was something kind of in the middle where the city council did say, we're going to override this veto, but we have changed what we're spending the money on. Uh, And six of the council members that were getting, not not the six most uh, amounts of money, but like some of the larger amounts of money, said, okay, we're changing this formula and we're dedicating more of this money towards the kind of thing that it was like, that the the protests that initiated it were, were meant to address. And so they improved the spending in the eyes of, like the mayor basically wrote a letter saying like, this is okay with me now that they're spending the money differently. So they got together on that. Black Lives Matter said it was okay with them. They supported the, 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 the override of the veto passing mm-hmm. on Wednesday, but want the rest of the money to go to black-led organizations. But the meeting was still pretty hot. So you had an interesting coalition of council members that were against this override. Go- they wanted to basically like start from scratch. They didn't want the money to be split up between the different council districts. They wanted it to be spent on like citywide stuff. And they were like, this process was not transparent enough that just like this is not acceptable. We have to start over. And there ended up being four no's on the override, which were Mike Bonin, Monica Rodriguez, Bob Blumenfield, and Joe Buscaino for in in some case like four different reasons interestingly joe buscaino doesn't think the money should be taken taken away from police at all to supplement these other services he thinks that they should be funded simultaneously mike Bonin thought that the money was still not well directed enough towards the causes that it was supposed to be spent on they all said different things like budget process things like that um ultimately i'm glad that this money got out the door uh i thought marquis harris dawson made a good point, a lot of mm-hmm. good points in that council meeting, which is, like, we find every process excuse to, like, in, a, in American history, once this money's dedicated, we try to get it perfect, and then eventually it just goes away. He compared it to 40 acres and a mule, was supposed to go to former slaves, ended up going to Confederate soldiers. Like, this is th- this is not, like, comparable to, to that necessarily, but, like, I don't have much faith that if we waited to get this to, into like perfect shape that it would have been like that it would have been better to, to to not account for the fact that it would have taken that much longer right uh like that would probably have taken another like four to six months to actually get this money spent and it also places kind of an undue emphasis on this amount of when everyone is saying everyone there was saying this is the beginning
2: we'll do more we'll do more everyone there was saying this is a small amount of money to- yeah exactly <laughs> it's not a big amount of money
1: <laughs> and it isn't that much and so like treat it like that spend it a lot of this stuff is really good we were talking before the show there's a there's a ubi program uh in cd9 which is like really interesting there, there's a lot of jobs programs there's like there's money that it, it's better for it to be spent sooner um and then let's figure out how to get more money in these and uh, send this direction later
0: I think to me the one thing that just isn't tying it up together is we talked about the you know where this came from and this why this discussion started and that really incredible Black Lives Matter presentation that was made in council chambers um but yet not really part of the solution at, you know of, of going back to them to say hey what do you think about this like they just like let them make the presentation and talk about what they wanted and then Without going back to those groups and saying, "Hey, get feedback. We're listening. We want we want to hear what you think." They that hasn't been done in any way, and we still haven't had them meeting again to talk about it. So to me, it seems like how do we know how do we know that we're doing the right thing? Right.
1: So something just- something changed with Black Lives Matter LA, and I, I I don't know the extent of communication between these six council members who put together the new formula. And Black Lives Matter, but Black Lives Matter flipped fr- from supporting the mayor's veto to supporting the council's override after right, right. after the formula got changed. Right, right. Um, but it was not the product of like public meetings and like the transparent participatory budgeting process that they've been talking about. Yeah, and they spoke up after to say like we we want to be a part of this going forward. There's more money that still has yet to be spent mm-hmm. and we want to play a role in, in how this decision-making happens. Cause yeah, none of this would be happening if not for, if not for their Wait. presentation, if not for the protests,
2: um, all of that. That's a weird coalition too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And like, also like them having it out in public to this degree, it was like, it was pretty civil, And like more like process disagreements than like totally ideological disagreements. Um, but it seems like we're getting more of that in the Nuri Martinez era than as council president than we did in the Herb Wesson era, era, which I think is a good thing. Um, let's talk about the stimulus package. This, you know, I, I, people have been focusing on different things related to the federal stimulus package that passed out of the Senate this weekend is now likely to, um, Get, get like fully uh, approved this coming week. There's the fourteen hundred dollar checks. To some extent, people have been talking about the the unemployment insurance. But what just kind of snuck through, and is a huge, huge, huge amount of money, and should be very impactful for a lot about b- what we talk about on this show is three hundred and fifty billion dollars in state and local funding. This was something that Republicans really pushed back on. They called it the blue bailout, mm-hmm. just like sending just piles and piles of money to uh, mostly
2: Democrat-led states and cities.
0: Places where most people live. Yeah. yeah. So any
2: Anytime that there's a distribution <laughs> that actually goes to people instead of agribusiness and it is a blue bailout. <laughs> But this was one of the things
1: that did not really seem to get negotiated down at all in the last couple weeks. It it stayed this uh, this pile of money stayed huge, and how it works out by all appearances, I I think like the final final numbers uh, are still going to be decided. But the state of California is going to get twenty six billion dollars. That's just the state. That's not for them to distribute among the state and local, like, uh, among counties and cities. That will mostly, I think, go to education budgets and, like, the aspects of governance that the state just controls. So that's $26 billion for California, $1.9 billion for L.A. County. Huge, huge amount of money. And $1.3 billion for just the city of L.A. And this money is wow. mostly, like, no strings. And... When you consider, so at the latest count, I think uh, the deficit that LA City was facing for this year was about $550 million. So this should just wipe that out. There are some like ongoing fiscal uncertainties for the city, but in general, this just like totally changes or should change the conversation around like what the city and county can afford in -hmm. terms of services. All we've heard for the last year. Is like this is a crisis. We uh, like we're crying poverty on this issue on that whatever they don't want to do, it's because there's cash flow issues, budget shortfalls, whatever. Like that, R I P to that excuse. This is a ton of money.
2: You say that. You say R I P to that excuse. Well, and, at least and that yet, excuse being <laughs> valid. You and no, I mean you're absolutely right in in that and but the thing is like we we just found out that one of the excuses that if you were being extremely generous and treating it as valid that we heard about project room key was it's too slow to get reimbursed by fema like the the amount of time that it takes us to get money back like there's even though even though the federal government is offering us basically what amounts to a blank check to spend as much as we want putting unhoused people up in hotel rooms we have such liquid cash flow issues that we can't make use of that come to find out this past week and and members of city council were finding this out for the first time uh in in really funny fashion online the city administration has not attempted to get reimbursed for anything to date. and what the fuck? Can, <laughs> can somebody can somebody please make this make sense for me because I'm completely at a loss? I mean, to some extent, I think this is just kind
1: of like, Fake accounting, where like they could find the money, like they they just like magically found seventy five million to keep Room Key going at exactly the size that it is, mm-hmm. right? If they wanted to find more than that, they could. I think the reimbursements they could get right now from FEMA that they like that they apply for would total it was like something in the tens of millions of dollars. Like if they wanted to find that money urgently to put it into Room Key, they right. could find it. So like. I I, like the idea that they're waiting for this FEMA money to come in so they can take that check and like sign the back and like sign it over to Project Roomkey (laughs) is just fake. They can get the money if they want to. They can get the the county can do the same thing. The county said that this week that they are not expanding Roomkey because of budget shortfalls. Mm -hmm. But like they are much more liquid than the city, they're in a much more financially healthy situation. And even healthier than that, than either of them is the state. So, like, some elected officials have been asking the state for front funding, but there hasn't been, like, a huge call from the county, from the the mayor's office to say, like, we really want to do this, just zero interest loan, just, like, give us this money and you'll get it all back uh, as soon as FEMA pays us. Because I think the state would be amenable to that. The answer is they just don't want to do it. They don't think it's, like, politically – Uh, viable enough for what is a temporary program. I think they're worried that the more they opened up Project Roomkey, the more people would end up just exiting out of it back into homelessness in September. They're just saying this is not worth the effort. And they don't want to say that, so they're assigning it to cash flow issues. But I promise you, now that they've just had an unprecedented amount of money dumped on them by the the most generous handout from Mm -hmm. the federal government ever, I agree with you, Scott. That will not change their decision-making around Project Roomkey or anything else they don't want to do at all. But they will, I think, take – there is money in this package for purchasing hotels to be used as shelters. There's money mm-hmm. coming from the state to do that. I my I, I hope – I mean, I would be shocked if they, if they turned down that money. But that money's just sitting there to be converted into to add permanent supportive housing units. They've already done that with, I think, eleven hotels. but you know, just based on everything that Ben Oreskes and uh, I think Dakota Smith was on some of these stories this week, there was just boom, boom boom, back to back yep. a bunch just showing that we 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 haven't asked for the few reimbursement that are available to us. The county is not even inter- interested in expanding the program at all. <laughs> like they're just signaling in every possible way that like this is just not. Gonna happen, and the idea like down the road, you just have to make them pay for that. You have to remind them like this was a
0: they had a chance, they had a chance. We
1: had so you said fifteen thousand rooms when uh, when FEMA was only reimbursing seventy five percent of that cost. Yeah, and now now you're saying two thousand rooms, I think, and not adding any more for a hundred percent reimbursement. What mm -hmm. happened? What mm -hmm. changed?
0: I think they'll say they want to buy the hotels instead. It's not if so. Well I mean just I'm saying that they'll be like we could keep them forever or something like that. So maybe that I'm just I'm just saying that could be an excuse that they might say and I Well we've heard it I all. We like we've, 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 we've I, really yeah. heard <laughs> it all
2: at this point. We've heard that there's no demand for it. We've heard <laughs> yeah. that there's too much demand. Yeah. <laughs> no money. There's, there's, there's too Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't there's matter. It doesn't money. matter. We've heard we every excuse money. conceivable and none of them none of them bear up under under the truth so yeah well
0: he did say the mayor did say in his briefing that it has not slowed down the acquisition of rooms this is the fact that they haven't applied for the reimbursements already so that excuse is no longer valid so it's something else what could it be what could it be
1: (laughs) uh let's say there are a bunch of stories uh in law enforcement this week who
2: someone go who wants to go first I can talk about uh, the the CBS news report that came out about a week and a half ago, I believe, um, and, and that report, which is I think a, an expanded retelling of things that we have discussed on this show previously, they were actually able to get anonymous sources within the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department to speak on the record about the sheriff's deputy gangs. We've talked about them for years at this point. And and the use of violence by these gangs, or cliques, as they're known. And the CBS report talks in specific about the case of Anthony Vargas, who was a 21-year-old Angelino who was killed by sheriff's deputies. Responding to a um, an, an alleged crime that he had nothing to do with and and was not really in the vicinity of when they uh, when they found and attacked him, the CBS News report goes on to talk about the the the, the what are known as ghost guns or, or sorry phantom guns, um, which are never recovered at the scene because they did not exist in fact at the time at the time that they were. Reported by sheriff's deputies, the banditos are are mentioned throughout this report, operating in East Los Angeles. Um, this is really damning, in particular because we have now the, the the discussion of current employees of the sheriff's department actually taking seriously the criminality that is in their ranks and hopefully more of them will come forward. But of course, as I mentioned, they did this anonymously because there is fear of reprisal and there was a very disturbing episode earlier this week where there was a, there was a clubhouse um, online conversation happening about this report. Um, And Anthony Vargas's family reported that there were members of the LA sheriff's department outside of their home attempting to intimidate them. Uh, of course they've been very vocal in the wake of their, their son, their family members death. So honestly, this is a continuation of themes that we've gone, gone into detail about in the past. Um, and, and it remains, I think one of the most disturbing issues ongoing in Los Angeles law enforcement, basically what, what, Deputies and LA Sheriff's Department staff are accusing their colleagues of doing is intentionally preying on and violently attacking or murdering members of the Latinx and Black communities here.
1: There was also, I want to flag um, this came out just yesterday as we're recording this on Sunday, but a few texts, these were dug up by. Michael Kohlhaas of michaelkohlhaas.org at .kohlhaas on Twitter. Text between Steve Soboroff, who's the head of the LAPD, the police commission, with Jamie McBride, who's one of the um, higher-ups at Mm -hmm. the police union. And it came after the police commission made a vote that strengthened some policy around pretextual searches. And it was a unanimous vote. And Jamie McBride from the police union texted Steve Soboroff just one word unanimously, question uh, mark. And then Steve Soboroff texted back, did you watch? Are you up to speed and understand this in context? The league is now at the table. I spoke with Craig and Jaretta yesterday. Your tone to me here is not appreciated, but I don't hold grudges. Call any time. And I think the big takeaway – from that exchange, for me, is it shows that this member of the police commission is coordinating with members of the police union prior to these votes taking place, uh, and we knew to some extent, like you know, they're they're very close. They 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 speak very fondly of police chief Michael Moore. Yep. Like this is this is not a huge surprise to me, but it does uh, illuminate not necessarily the relationship that you would want from the oversight authority of the LAPD uh, talking to union bosses uh, this this way and seeming to coordinate with Craig and Jaretta. Craig is the – Craig Lally, who's the president of the LAPBL, the police union, and Jaretta Sandoz is another very
2: uh, high-up member of the of the union. So that's who that refers to.
1: Should we move on to Concrete Wars?
2: Yes. Let's talk about Concrete this is a story that you are both going to have to apprise me of the, the likelihood that this actually uh, does pass. But I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty concerned that it's made it as far as it has, I guess.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that just passes without really much knowledge of anyone, including... like This is, this is a motion that's going before the city council that was approved this week in the Public Safety Committee 5-0. to and it's the kind of thing that just passes i promise you not every member of the public safety committee knew what they were voting uh-huh not it, it this would eventually get to if people didn't notice it and flag it it would eventually get to city council and it would pass and nobody would know the difference and it was it's only being talked about this week i only know about it because it was flagged by Shane Phillips out of UCLA who like writes about housing and what this motion does what this ordinance would do is it would basically make it illegal to use wood frame construction for a much wider range of buildings. So then you would have to uh, much more often use concrete. Concrete is used primarily, like pretty much exclusively for uh, w- w- when you're building like skyscrapers, mm-hmm. like steel reinforced uh, concrete. But much more often it doesn't for- have to be. Does't have to be. but for smaller structures, <laughs> it's much more common in LA to use a wood frame construction, single-family homes and like apartment buildings up to what like four stories, I think. Four
0: or five stories. yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, it's much more common to use wood. Wood is cheaper. It is cheaper to build with mass timber than it is you can to do up till eight eight stories with wood. I think there's some. Well, yeah, but
0: they're going to do much taller now if we would allow. So talk I mean, legal about, you, legally you talk speaking.
1: about this. Uh, <laughs> talk about this, Alyssa.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear. I think there's been um, I would hope that the public safety um, experts have been reading the latest building trade information about mass timber and uh, how really we should be moving away from concrete at all costs whenever possible simply because of the climate benefits mm-hmm. I and mean, if you think about um what you're what you're doing when you're building a building um and the embodied carbon that you are uh, from all different aspects of the construction and then the people who end up living there and and their habits and you know you look your footprint just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and if you start with a a wood, a tim- you know, we call mass timber. There's uh, all these different new um, innovations that make just regular wood a lot stronger. Um, it doesn't burn. I think we'll talk about that in a second. It doesn't burn at the way you're thinking, like the um, Jeffrey Palmer building going up in flames uh, under construction. But it it it, uh, it really is like the the most resilient and the smartest material we can use, and you just grow forests, which can contribute to the health and well-being to, of the planet and people who live around it. Um, instead of having a huge, you know, concrete, mm-hmm. you know, plant at your <laughs> your site, you see those trucks like rolling in. But I think the the biggest thing when we're talking about like safety, in particular these buildings are going up now in other cities um, and they're like 10, 12 stories tall and they're much safer, you know, not just the fire risk really isn't that big of a deal, but also they could be safer in earthquakes. And I think if you're earthquakes are a wood frame building, you're very safe in an earthquake here um, in LA and to suddenly mandate that everything should be concrete. We know that there are some issues with that from, any building that you would look around at that has collapsed in one of our earthquakes in the last few years, Mexico yeah. city. So,
1: I know saw their yeah. concrete yes, in, have, in, yeah. infrastructure just be devastated. Right. Uh, and, and, their and it's not that we don't earthquake.
0: need a little bit of everything. I mean, you obviously pouring foundations, things like that, although those can be, you know, you can do different things, but, we really need to be moving away and towards mass timber is the future. And, and a lot of other big cities have already made those decisions. We don't have any kind of uh, initiative like that yet in L.A. And we really should. And this would stop that, right? Is my I understanding.
2: Mean, um, what this sounds like to me is something that would be a dream come true if you happen to be in the business of selling concrete.
1: That's so interesting because the National Ready Mix Concrete Association <laughs> is actually sponsoring is basically like the energy behind this happening at all they put out the press release from their organization build with strength okay which is designed to make you think that concrete is the more sustainable and safer and just like overall better solution when it costs more and the only real advantage to it in in this kind of construction is for ready mix concrete manufacturers and purveyors Well, they have been, so like, and again, I did not know that this was something that they were lobbying on specifically until this week. But as soon as I saw, oh, like the the concrete industry is behind this, I've been looking at a lot of political donations for the last year. And Uh this is an organization that you see come up over and over and over again. And I Hmm. never knew exactly why. But now, I guess it's I do. such a cliche. Over the last couple years, Corrupt. of the current council members, you have seen the National Ready Mix Concrete Association themselves or one of their like government affairs representatives max out to Kern Price, Gil Cedillo, Bob Blumenfield twice, who sponsored this motion and put it forward in the first place, Marquise Harris-Dawson, and also formerly Herb Wesson and David Rue. So they have – this has been in the works for a while. This passed out a Plum committee – A long
0: time ago, Uh
1: and no one even noticed. Or maybe people did, but I certainly didn't notice.
0: Well, I think at the time that it passed, you know, the last two years, this has been going through whatever, all these different um, committees and stuff. You know, we have had, like, really big structural fires in, like, downtown L.A. They're usually construction sites because they're not... The wood is not protected yeah. at that point, right? You're, you just sure. literally have like, you know, two by fours or whatever. But um, I think that got into people's heads. And then also the the fires that, that we had, you know, in L.A. County, you know, you had something like the Woolsey fire took out a lot of structures. Um, there is a very good case for really strengthening our building codes in the WUI, in the wild and urban interface um, but that's not what this bill is about at all. This is not in any kind of, it's not related to or tied to um, the place that you see the most risk where we actually shouldn't be building any buildings. I mean, right. that would be where we'd want to start with with that conversation. But the, the places where you've seen um, these pl- ha- homes burn down, like in Malibu, Malibu chose not to change what you had to do when you rebuild your home. They were just like, just go ahead and rebuild it exactly the way you had it just make sure you don't plant too many trees too close to it you know that's kind of like the extent of, of what's gotten into so to have these conversations is great in the places where people are at risk they're not at risk of living in a, a wood frame building in koreatown sure. or downtown la or you know right it's, it's mm-hmm. not there's no danger of this fire ripping through uh, the city and somehow what <laughs> let me walk that back there <laughs> The the danger is not going to be from a wood framed building catching on fire because we know how to make the wood framed buildings safer now. Yeah, this
2: is this is a peculiar one because it does seem like there there's no there's no danger sit on a city wide scale and there's also no benefit. There are huge actual e- ecological costs to as as you've both so uh, so clearly laid out to to taking this path. I also want to just say like. One of the things that is maybe under discussed here and I find really upsetting, for lack of a better word, is that, hey, is, when when we introduced this segment just a few minutes ago, you were like, this is the kind of thing that comes up and it just passes without people even knowing what yes. it is, Would without uh, without being flagged, would come up in full city council. No one would have organized against it and it would have just passed. What is and when I say no one, I want to say again, including many of the council members who vote on it. To, I totally believe that. What is ups, what I will say is upsetting to me is what we're describing is a paradigm in which, if people know what a vote is about, it makes it more likely not that people will vote against it. But that it will never be called for a vote. That's correct. That yes. it just will <laughs> never. It which, will disappear. Yes. Which, by the
1: way, is fine. <laughs> I don't care. I like like it, I, it, it. Whether it goes away or like comes up for a vote and gets voted down, it doesn't matter. But like the more people are saying to someone like Council President Nuri Martinez, who I'm glad to see doesn't appear to have taken this money that I can find, and so m- maybe is less likely to agendize this. This is a terrible policy for the last year almost every city council meeting has talked about how expensive per unit the construction is on Mm -hmm. permanent supportive housing this would make it more expensive so many of these projects are almost all of them that i can think of are wood frame yeah so they want to turn this into a reinforced concrete but every single one built with reinforced concrete it would make every single unit so much more expensive it is a terrible terrible idea and the National Association of Ready Mixed uh, Concrete is making those calls. They are saying, Council President Martinez, we're so happy to see that. This is now on your desk. Can we educate you as to the benefits, the environmental benefits of using concrete? And, like, it's so, I mean, we're grateful for people like Shane in this case and, like, so many other experts who can see something coming, especially in committee, because by the time it gets agendized for the full council vote, it's, almost always too late or then you mm-hmm. have to put in so much work to stop it but if it gets agendized that means it's probably just going to pass but now that this yeah. is like at the point where it's just gotten out of committee people can like be activated and like say to their council member i already know of a few that are now aware of this and they're like oh this is a bad idea so like that that makes this process that otherwise would just not get any attention at all, I mean, like, yes, to Scott's point, it probably just doesn't get agendized if you do your job right.
0: Well, I mean, I see the same thing happening with that um, gas company, the gas company, AstroTurfing Group. What's it called? California's for- Balanced uh, Energy Solutions, yes. Balanced (laughs) Energy Solutions, which has gotten- a a huge sway upon our elected officials and it's very clear from from some recent reporting that they will say nothing bad about natural gas so i would love to call out to our climate journalists out there to start asking questions about concrete to our elected officials in the same way because the right answer is that we need to be building tons of like Gorgeous high-rise wood buildings in our city, and and really being like the leader if we want to be this this climate city's champion that we're supposed to be becoming, uh, that would be the better move. Uh,
2: the case the case for uh, balanced energy solutions, just as a side note, is is really stalling out after the deep freeze in Texas. <laughs> Froze <laughs> all of their natural gas well, infrastructure.
0: Hopefully, a, a wildfire we're not will not prove the other team wrong on the <laughs> on the wood frame buildings. But we need to harden them. In, we need to harden buildings in the WUI. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we you know it's all good. But um, I've never heard not, this term down, down down before. Line.
2: But I'm, it's not. You've now it? you've now said not it twice. Favorite. And I. I <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, that's it. Thank you for listening to LA Podcast. Thank you to Brian Holmes for producing the show. We will be back next week. Bye-bye.